Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Shannon Clute, uh, an innovator in marketing, communications, academics, uh, you name it. And uh, Shannon, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so you've had an eventful career and then you've also had an eventful 2020 as, as many of us have. So, so maybe we could start by, by you introducing yourself to, to our audience uh, just to describe who you are and how you got to this point in your career. Sure. The short answer, I'm currently director of the Hatchery Emory Center for Innovation at Emory University, which I'd be happy to talk about uh, at greater length, but essentially we are carving out a white space in innovation in higher education that's focused on innovation for student success. And I have come to that work through a series of career transitions in, as you pointed out, marketing and innovation work previously. Mm -hmm. I was at Turner Classic Movies for about 10 years where I held various roles, including I was tapped to build and run the marketing function and uh, to build culture of innovation programs for entrepreneurship and internal strategic alignment around some core business challenges. Mm -hmm. Before that, I had been a professor on the tenure track in the humanities and an early podcaster. Back in 05, I started an early academic podcast that really opened the door to many of these subsequent uh roles so yeah happy yeah. to speak about any of those things yeah that's 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 amazing yeah so 2005 that's uh that's when podcasts were genuinely a new thing you know trending yeah. in education we're a mere we're, we're we're a pup we're a mere four years old doing this since 2016 what was it like in the early days and uh, how do you think about uh, the power of podcasting we were we were chatting briefly about it before we started recording I'd love to get your your perspective as an OG who's who's also got some innovation chops really throughout your career. I'd, lo I'd love to hear what was it like back then and 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 how how it's evolved, how you think how how you used it and how uh, you think other folks may be able to use it. So, we were using it to solve a local problem uh, that we were seeing in the classroom and I think this is probably true of many of the things I've done throughout my career. The innovation work has been really the outcome of wanting to solve very specific problems and just being willing to approach those from various points of view and through the embrace of various new technologies. So we were seeing, this was 04 to 06, that uh, myself and a colleague, Richard Edwards, who is now the director of the Excite Center for Teaching and Learning at UC Riverside, and I forget what the acronym means exactly, but he runs experiments in instructional design, teaching and learning, and supporting these at scale technologically for the university. Yep. And we were seeing this transition where there was a moment when suddenly all the students arriving at St. Mary's College of California, where we were teaching, were the first students to come through an entirely standardized curriculum. And we were seeing that the way that they worked with literature was almost overnight very different than what their predecessors had done. So that if you were to break down an assignment in terms of, you know, name the protagonist, the antagonist, name five action points that change, you know, any of the things that are done in a more standardized curriculum's approach to literature and, and reading and writing, they could do it extremely well. But if in a great book seminar, which is what we were uh, in the context of, you were to ask them, 
what is it about this text that seems important to you? Find evidence in the text for your reading. So this kind of reading for pattern and constructing points of view was just a totally foreign skill set. And we were trying to work through the text of the Great Books program to improve this kind of conversation dialogue in the classroom. And it dawned on us that we were facing a double quandary. One, they hadn't done this kind of work and nobody had really modeled it for them. And two, we were dealing with a set of texts that itself was so foreign. So we thought maybe what we could do is embrace a technology that would allow us a free form conversation, which was also interesting tra uh, training as academics because we were not able to come at it from any particular disciplinary optics. We had to just kind of have a free form conversation about a text and to address text that would be maybe easier for students to access. And where we settled was uh, on film noir. And that was mm -hmm. only because it was a shared passion that we both had, but we thought film yeah. text would be more accessible to students. And we settled on podcasting because it was this emerging tech that would allow us to really just sort of have a conversation until it had run its course. And we mm -hmm. weren't forced to obey time constraints like traditional broadcast. We weren't yeah forced to do a lot of other production things we'd have to do. And so we kicked off the show out of the past investigating film noir in 05, thinking that it was a very open format for addressing a specific problem. But as we soon learned in the era of DIY media, anything that is niche has a potential audience that may surprise you. Yeah. And so pretty soon it had been selected as an iTunes featured podcast. Nice. It ended up getting picked up by Australian Broadcasting Radio National as one of their selections, Top of the Pods, which was their yeah. world's you know, favorite podcasts around the globe. And so it ended up getting a, a bigger audience than uh, we probably anticipated. Yeah, well, you had me at film noir too. Oddly, a lot of our world is somewhat noirish nowadays as well. So, so maybe you were, you were ahead, of, ahead of the curve on that front as well back in the day. Well, it's funny. We just recorded a 15th anniversary episode, ah, which we're going nice. to be posting soon, and argue in that that we may actually be at the end of noir, because mm -hmm. while the world is indeed dark in many ways, yeah. for yeah. noir to work, there has to be kind of a shared cultural understanding about what a transgression is and that your own personal agency can be punishable. And we've reached this kind of absurdist point in our culture where neither of those things seems to be true. We wow. don't seem to have any shared moral code and we don't seem to take any responsibility for our own agency. Wow. So, you know, we may be reaching the end of that and moving into a, a moment when sci-fi or something else is a yeah. better storytelling code. It's it's not even Chinatown, Jake, anymore. We don't, we don't even know what it is. Wow. So that's 15 years ago, you were exploring these themes as an academic and leveraging new media. And it sounds like even though you've worn varied hats, I imagine Turner Classic Movies, there's still a, a, a nod to film and a nod to film noir in there too. So like, sounds like there's some through lines to your career, but there's also a pretty wide variety to it. And Going from academia into marketing and innovation is a pretty uh, significant uh, shift. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on how that felt and what you learned about what's similar, what's different. I'd just love to get your thoughts on all that. So lots of similarities, lots of differences, needless to say. Mm -hmm. And I feel very fortunate to have been able to work in both of these worlds. And in academia, to have worked both on the, the faculty and the staff side is also a treat. Mm -hmm. 
The transition was a bit rocky, as you would expect, but I think the common thread through all of my career changes has been never abandon your passion projects. Mm -hmm. Because as much as I would like to claim that I've been very intentional about these transitions, what often has happened is that the passion project has opened the door and I've been able to step through it. So that was the case in that transition from academia to Turner Classic Movies. I realized in the course of doing that podcast that maybe I was in the wrong field because my research or my dissertation had been in 16th and 20th century French literature. And I really seemed to have a passion for mid-century American studio filmmaking and hard-boiled literature. And I suddenly woke up one day and went, wow, you know what? I I may be a long way from where I want to be. So I looked at where transitions might be possible. And I realized that I wanted to double down on the podcasts and content related to the podcast. And one of those projects became an academic press book on noir with Dartmouth Press. Mm -hmm. I also started writing hard-boiled mysteries. And what ended up happening was I decided to step away from the tenure track and take a chance. Ended up at a small publisher in Atlanta. My wife and I moved because her family was from this region. Mm -hmm. And after about uh, six or eight months in that, a couple of things came together, which is that my first mystery was one of the 10 semifinalists in the Court TV Next Great Crime Writer Contest. Court TV was a Turner property. That was the precursor of uh, True TV. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I learned that there were a couple of folks at Turner Classic Movies who were fans of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And those uh, came together with the fact I was living in Atlanta and I was able to do that kind of first person uh, relationship building and uh, ultimately opened the door. Wow. Yeah. I'm just curious about the, the history of the, the term hard-boiled, too. Just while, while, we're, while we're going, going through the <laughs> film noir space, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understand where that comes from. What, what, what makes something hard-boiled? I believe it was Raymond Chandler who first used the term, but hard-boiled literature is often the term that's used to refer to the style that emerged in the mystery pulps in the 20s and 30s, really kind of reached its stylistic apex in the works of folks like James M. Cain, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Mm-hmm. and Jim Thompson. Those are often yeah. the, the writers who are cited as sort of the great canon of, of hard-boiled. And it is often discussed as a style, uh, very much like noir is often discussed as a style. But one of the things that we often argued in our podcast was that to discuss it only as a style really misses the point that it articulates a worldview that is very consistent and seems to be driven by what we characterized as a brutal existentialism, where you do have agency, but when you make a mistake, that is going to be punished in spades. Mm -hmm. The key difference is it's not normally punished by another human being. If it is, you end up with, you know, traditional cop fiction or with a Western or a war film, or even a superhero story. Versus noir, what tends to happen is if you transgress, it's the universe itself that comes crashing down on you. So I think the gray line there is The Killers, the 1946 film with Burt Lancaster, where at the beginning of the film, something runs to tell him that there are killers there to get him, and he just doesn't even feel like running anymore. He just kind of sits there and waits for his fate, and the guy says to him, tries to convince him to run, and he finally just says, no, nah, I'm staying. And the guy can't get his head around this. And he says, well, what happened? And he says, I made a mistake once. 
And that is just the noir line because it really sums up that whole universe. Uh, wow, I'm curious. So, and what's and what's the name of the podcast? Is it still out there? If folks wanted to to, to go down that rabbit hole, or, or yeah, is yeah, hole? No, yeah, they are. We we are still generating quite a few downloads. We have not done a new episode in since 2010. I guess it's been a decade, but it's out of the past investigating film noir. Nice, cool. And always impressed to see folks who have uh, really sort of established podcasting, although it's still a moving target and expanding and moving in directions and dimensions that, that we're all just trying to keep up with. But, uh, but yes, that's super interesting. And I, I love the, the note about pursuing your passion project and being open to passion projects, plural, and being open to where, what doors that they might, they might open for you. And then I imagine it's, uh, it's also uh, challenging to step through those doors too. You know, there is a, a tendency, I think, to be risk averse in one's career trajectory, but it sounds like you've, you've actually explored some interesting shifts throughout your career. Perhaps most, uh, most recently, I, I'd, I'd like to sort of fast forward to the, to the future, or which is now the present, and that's, you know, what you're doing at the hatchery at uh, Emory University. And then, you know, you haven't been there too long and then this pandemic hits. So can we fast forward to maybe the last uh, year or so, you know, from the time at which, at which you moved to Emory to take on this new role, and then what's been involved in, in leading this effort, both prior to the pandemic and then right on through it? Sure. So out of the past and into the present. That's, that's there you a go. transition. So yeah. one thing I should probably, one thread I should back up and, and maybe pick up is that during my decade at Turner Classic Movies, I moved from a series of content positions to a marketing and communications role, and then finally into a position where I was heading up culture of innovation programs, which were both meant to create strategic alignment around some core business challenges and to serve as an internal pipeline for new business uh, development. Mm -hmm. And that combination of experience, plus the fact that I had come from the tenure track and worked on the faculty side, I think is probably what ultimately helped me to step into this role now at Emory. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, I'm director of the Hatchery Center for Innovation. What's unique about this is that it is an initiative under the auspices of the Office of the Provost. Mm -hmm. And that's relatively unusual in innovation centers in the higher education, mm -hmm. where more commonly you'll see things through the college or through the School of Business business is a very common one, or yeah. at the professional level of the university where they're focused on sort of industry partnership and creating a pipeline to industry for university IP. So yeah. the initiative itself is a bit unusual, and I think it's been the ideal setting for us to work on trying to strategically understand and address what we're seeing as a white space in innovation in higher education. Mm -hmm. So I briefly mentioned sort of what some of the, the more standard models are, but typically you either see centers that support student entrepreneurship, often under a school of business, yep. centers that support R&D and drive industry partnership for commercialization of university IP, centers that support interdisciplinary scholarship and cross-program collaboration, often those are with a college uh, of arts and sciences, mm -hmm. and then centers that support innovation and in teaching, instructional design, programmatic delivery. Right. And what we saw was an opportunity to 
use the physical space of a beautiful new facility like the hatchery and the programs that we create there as a bigger front end of the funnel to bringing more students into innovation work and then providing them with a foundation in innovation process. So human-centered design, lean startup methods, so that they could apply those tools to hacking their own educational careers and ultimately improving their professional outcomes. Mm -hmm. And what we hope then is that the that through that sort of work, that not only are we ensuring a sort of student-driven and crowdsourced strategy for program development, yep. but we are also helping students to develop broader perspectives and disciplinary approaches uh, to diversifying their teams, to creating an intentional crossroads of community where we can help students to kind of expand their cognitive and professional horizons and maybe even create kind of a continuum of the student experience from pre-enrollment to alumnihood. And ultimately, all of the soft skills of innovation that they practice in a center like that, creativity, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, should translate to professional success. So if you borrow from the world of DevOps, we're really trying to use innovation to help students transition from being I-shaped, where they're very deep in a relatively narrow discipline, to being T-shaped, where they can still draw on that disciplinary expertise, but they've got the experience of working collaboratively with very diverse teams on problem-based learning so that they can transition more easily into the business world and not just be good at the kind of incremental learning that they've done until that time. Yeah, that's... uh... It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating program you're talking about. And then it sounds like the problem-based learning in many ways is based on real life business challenges or like how, how do you define the problems for, for your students? So one of the hallmarks, I think, of my work across industries has been that I've always been focused on customer discovery, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at Turner, one of the things I learned from when I was heading up marketing was that our fans wanted deeper engagement. And so we set out to prove that a marketing initiative could create both broader and deeper engagement simultaneously. One of the things we did was partner with Ball State University and the person who was then heading up the iLearn Institute at Ball State was, lo and behold, my former podcasting partner. And we we partnered to create these uh, MOOCs that were really different in that instead of using a traditional learning management system or LMS to deliver, we actually stitched together an ecosystem of mass communications platforms and channels to deliver and and leverage the content of the course and get students engaged. So for example, we delivered the movies for the course through the linear network as part of a programming initiative. We sent out a daily lesson in through our ESP, MailChimp, I think we're using at the time, where we set up a brief paragraph of contextual reading provided a film clip that illustrated that problem and then drove people to either social or our message boards for the communication components uh, and the further discussion. And these things were huge drivers. They were the biggest drivers of social in the history of the network. And so we wanted to bring some of what we'd learned about customer discovery and what you can do if you really kind of listen and design for what people are telling you over to this side at Emory. And so a lot of what we're learning there is through ongoing work with the students. So I don't have preconceived notions really of, of what 
it means or what sort of content should go into creating these programs that solve these sorts of problems. Instead, what we're doing is going to students and saying, what are the programs you need uh, from a center of innovation that will help you to feel more engaged, more successful. That's been top of mind in a period of remote learning. During normal operations, what are those programs you need to help you help support any ideas you have around innovation and entrepreneurship? A lot of it is about problem discovery. What is it that you want to solve for? And then trying to match problems that we're seeing students want to address with both other professors, student networks to get people connected to the problems, you know, to other people who are like-minded and also to resources across the university, whether those are programmatic or digital tools or experts uh, in various fields. So we're a big matchmaker in many ways based on what we hear through customer discovery to other student networks, to existing programs, to existing resources. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. I, I like that you're, you're describing a white space, and I'd love to hear a little more of your, your thoughts around what is that white space? How are you helping folks uncover the opportunities there at Emory? And then for folks who may not be at Emory, how are you thinking about these opportunities and what kind of advice would you give folks who are playing with their head up, who wanna really be innovators and lean into the, the rapid change that is, uh, is really happening everywhere? Yeah, it's a good and a big question. I'm going to say once again, customer discovery is at the heart of it. It was mm -hmm. through extensive interviews with key stakeholders across the university on the professional side, as well as with students across the university, that we were able to identify what sorts of trends people were seeing in higher education innovation and what sorts of gaps students were perceiving in particular mm -hmm. and how we could potentially do something that with the center that would help to address some of those gaps. Yep. So it's not to say that nobody is focused on student success with innovation centers. I think that in a center for entrepreneurship or one that's focused on supporting student entrepreneurship, they would tell you very specifically that is what they're focused on. In a sense, that's true. I guess what we are doing is making that rather than the output, the goal. So as opposed to a, a center for entrepreneurship, ultimately it's the, the business idea that emerges or the product that emerges that is, is largely the focus for us. It's largely the student at the center of the process that is our mm -hmm. focus. So mm -hmm. we're really trying to figure out how to leverage all of these best practices in service of the student's learning arc and helping them to see that innovation work is one way that they can really hack their educational experience and achieve a greater perceived value and better outcomes ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's maybe how I would frame that white space. In terms of how we're getting there, it's, it's ceaseless customer discovery and a willingness to always try to respond. In terms of how that's played out recently, as I mentioned, we started by thinking that what we were going to do is focus largely on this beautiful new space we'd created. And for our listeners, I have the benefit of seeing Shannon's virtual backdrop, which is, is an amazing physical space, which I imagine is the, is the hatchery. And, and now there's, there's, there's plenty of social distancing already happening in uh, your virtual backdrop, but now I imagine it's even more challenging. So, so that's a real business challenge, I imagine, that, that you've been grappling with through, through the COVID response. 
It is. And so we initially were really focused on leveraging the benefits of the space and all the material resources we'd acquired for this space to empower collaboration and innovation work. And we built towards this big opening in early March, and we had to shutter operations within two weeks. Oh my God. So we immediately shifted gears and thought, well, if we're going to be serious and put our money where our mouth is, we have mm-hmm. to really leverage these best practices ourselves and figure out what we can do that would be most helpful to students right now. And again, mm-hmm. customer discovery and empathy. So mm-hmm. we started doing a lot of interviews initially through a small advisory group of students and then broadening that and learned that there were lots of types of programs that they wanted to see and that most of them were not content focused. So whereas before COVID, people were wanting deep dives into say design thinking mm-hmm. or, you know, as soon as they made this switch, what they were reporting was feeling overwhelmed with Zoom suddenly becoming nothing but an informational portal for them. Mm-hmm. And they were getting too much content there. And what they wanted was something that was lighter, that was more about keeping them feeling engaged with their peers and with the university. So we spun up as quickly as we could our own MVPs, and we've been calling our programs that this spring because really they've been about creating minimum viable programs as quickly as we can and then just testing them with people. And one of the ones that was a hit was the peer-to-peer masterclass taught by students. And the only real criterion was that it should be on a topic that would be of interest to any innovator or entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And so we've had students teach on everything from how to run your own YouTube channel to leveraging color theory for self-empowerment in moments of transition. And we've got one upcoming on blockchain for social impact. Mm -hmm. So that's been a hit. We've also been doing, or we're about to start an alumni journey series because students want more first person narratives from alumni of the university to get a real sense of how people transition from studenthood to, you know, professional life. So we're spinning up lots of different things. We tested about seven or eight brand new program ideas. And I think about 20 individual episodes of those programs in just a Mm -hmm. month's time. And this summer we've been focusing on a lot of internships that combine professional development in innovation work with turning students loose on core business challenges we're facing in order to become more responsive to what they want programmatically, communications-wise, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because the way I was hearing uh, you frame up the white space in some ways was taking some of these practices that work outside of the traditional university setting and then bringing them into the the academic life and the university life of, of these students because um, there is a challenge that the university faces or that ac- academia faces to, in that it, it may be perceived as disconnected from the rest of what's happening in the world around us. I know in your career, it seems as though you've, you've actually been making those connections and seen some uh, real fluidity between those two things. But uh, my perception is that when, when folks have a problem with higher education, it's that it doesn't really connect to some of these emerging trends because it's, it's sort of slow to respond. You're mentioning good design thinking, human-centered design, even university connecting with private enterprise problems. I think those, those things, exposing undergrads to that type of thinking early, I think can really move the needle. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear you, you expand on that a little more. 
Sure. I mean, it's early stage. So reporting success stories, it may be a bit premature. What I can say is, in terms of the university side, we don't have a mandate to try to change university processes through the innovation work we're doing. What we do, however, is try to spin things up quickly. And when they prove to have value after we've sort of programmatically de-risked them, if you will, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. offer them up to the university. And if there are are parts of our process or parts of our program that can be adopted at a higher level, great. Mm -hmm. I will say this. I think there is a key way in which industry and universities large, large corporations and universities are very similar and that we're actually seeing them run into some of the same challenges. And that is that large organizations tend to lead with their expertise. Mm -hmm. And that creates a situation where everything is an inward out push. Mm -hmm. And the world is now really functioning much more around niche expertise and everything Mm -hmm. is an an outward in pull. So Mm -hmm. one thing that I saw at Turner that was really disrupting, you know, the cable television world that I'm seeing again in higher education is that all of the traditional push logics that, that we've embraced as best practices have been displaced by the pull logics of digital community and fandom. So for example, in the world of entertainment media, the, the, the corporation would create the show. They would then push the show through the, you know, established uh, distribution channels, and then they would promote it with marketing to get the kind of consumption they wanted to see. Increasingly, everybody is a content producer and everybody is a distributor. And the companies that are really breaking through are the ones that are saying, okay, we have fans out there. Let's find out what they're already doing. You know, it's a customer discovery. Let's figure out how we can empower their work and make them co-owners of our brand. Let's Mm -hmm. leverage their distribution channels. And then, you know, let's see what those metrics look like. And companies early on that really saw the writing on the wall, the BBC, you know, five years ago or more created a sandbox where its fans, uh, they gave them all these media assets and said, create the promo, you know, create the content around our shows that you want to see. And they gave them musical bridges from the shows and they gave them static media and they gave them clips and they gave them, and not only did they end up with much, greater uh, uptick in in show engagement, they ended up surfacing a whole bunch of storylines that they'd never mm. expected because people yeah. created all kinds of ships that, you know, mm-hmm. rela- relationships they hadn't seen coming. Yeah. Um, versus at the same time, there were other media companies that were just trying to really punish anybody who was creating fandom videos in right. YouTube. And so, you know, I think there's a, an analogous approach in higher education where we continue to do the customer discovery with current students to figure out what is the type of program or the type of micro-credential or the other type of solution that they might be looking for mm-hmm. to feel like they've gotten the greatest value and then to deliver that. And yeah. I don't think that means as radical a disruption as some detractors of higher ed would claim. So I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. Higher ed will be totally disrupted. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a different trend, which is that a lot of people are saying, I'd rather take a gap year because I want the traditional model of higher education. 
I don't want any alternative to fully place-based and yep. all the things it comes with. And that's, I think, because education in this country doesn't just deliver a credential. It is a cultural rite of passage. And mm -hmm. people have understood the value of that. A lot in there and uh, a lot of good advice, I think, around flipping from uh, more of a command and control top-down approach to being more genuinely customer-centered, learner-centered, human-centered, and allow for things to emerge and then be responsive to what is emerging so that you can be opportunistic about the crowdsourcing of innovation really sounds fascinating. I'd love to get into uh, a bit more of your trend spotting prowess because I'm, I'm sensing that you are someone who, who likes to see as, as Gretzky uh, liked to put it where the, where the puck is going. So considering your, your varied experiences so far, and really the role you're in uh, now at the hatchery, I'd imagine you're someone who can really get a sense of what might be emerging and get a sense of some macro trends that might be of interest to our listeners. So anything capturing your imagination around what's new, what's emerging, what folks who care about the, the future of learning might want to seize hold of? Uh, we've talked about a lot of it already. Feel free to reinforce uh, some of those ideas, but also I'd love to hear any, any new ideas or any new uh, trends that you're, you're tracking these days. One that is pretty surprising to me is the number of Gen Zers who claim that entrepreneurship is their top career mm. choice. And I don't think there's, there's really a solid understanding of what that means. I think this mm. is a Shark Tank generation and yeah. they see these buyouts and they think that, well, I've got great ideas and don't mm -hmm. really understand the amount of work that it takes. And I see that, I think a lot of people see that as a generation that's not sufficiently focused on traditional fields of study. I see it as an opportunity to leverage the techniques of what they believe is their desired career path to get them interested in things that will ground them in ways that a may disabuse them of that notion that that's their, their top career choice. Yeah but importantly help them to appreciate the ways in which more established fields of study can be leveraged for innovation. I've often yeah. said that I think a PhD in French literature was the best possible preparation for work in innovation and business development in industry. And people look mm -hmm. at me cross-eyed. But at the end of the day, ultimately, I think it's about understanding the culture and language of the place you're at and being able to convey in a language that makes sense to people locally what it is that you want to accomplish. And so mm -hmm. that sensitivity to the culture, the language, the storytelling is crucial. Mm -hmm. There's also an emerging body of research by folks like Heather McGowan is one good one to point to that yes, yes. we've been very focused on STEM teaching and learning and well-intentioned thinking that the STEM careers were very stable and that's where the growth was. And there has been growth in those fields, but as, as she has pointed out, that's increasingly that growth is, is reversing and that as we move from the third industrial revolution where we were focused on building the, the large interconnected systems that empower our modern world into a fourth industrial revolution that's increasingly governed by AI controlled interrelationships between human and machine systems that the skills that are so important are not the technical skills, which many of which can be 
displaced by AI. They're the very human skills that cannot be displaced and that we need in order to make sure that these systems are equitable and function in a way that is most beneficial. So they're the creativity, the communication, the collaboration, all of the tools of the humanities. And you know, these, these things are taught through other fields than the humanities certainly, but they're these very human skills as opposed mm-hmm. to these very technical skills. So those are yeah. a couple of big trends that strike me. Yeah. Beyond that, I would say the one that I always call out is the need for all large organizations in the industry and higher ed to think about the ramifications of the fact that push logics have been displaced by pull logics mm. and puzzle through what that means in terms of the creation and distribution of the content that is the backbone of their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lot, uh, lot to digest there. Lots, uh, lots going on. And how is the shift to to non in person at the hatchery? Uh, like, any thoughts on, on lessons learned or how that's been going so far? Well, first lesson, ideally, when you make that shift, you wouldn't be a middle-aged man with a five-year-old son at home. That's one lesson. So there have been, like everyone else, you know, with two kids at home out of public schools, that has been a really interesting challenge. And I can talk all I want about try to innov- trying to innovate solutions, but you run into just the core logistics of working mm-hmm. in these environments. And it's tough. One lesson is that very small incremental tasks, trying to break things down into the quickest possible units. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to think of my days less like a wash of time and more like a set of Legos that could mm-hmm. be potentially assembled in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Ultimately, I think we've taken a similar programmatic ap- approach. Instead of leading with one giant strategy and strategic charter, we have figured out what do students really need? And then how can we deliver that in bits and pieces like Legos mm-hmm. so that ultimately mm-hmm. we can construct something for the moment yeah. uh, and, it, and we can reuse those building blocks for something else if we need to. Yeah. But it's been an interesting time for sure. And I miss the physical space. I miss the colleagues. There's nothing quite like a higher education setting and Emory's a wonderful place to be. And that is tough to, to work around. Yeah, but it sounds like you have all the tools to innovate through whatever the blending, hybriding, whatever the um, the new emerging <laughs> discovery is going to be. You know, in some ways, you could do some customer discovery on yourself and your colleagues to figure out how the the hatchery will will hatch new things. Uh, hopefully, they'll be hard boiled. There you go. I'm trying to tie it all together, <laughs> Shannon. But uh, any final any final thoughts? It's a wonderful conversation. We'd love to continue to track your uh, your progress too, because it sounds like. You were really just gearing up to launch uh, with some new energy, and then everything got shook a little bit. But uh, but you've been resilient, powering through, and now we're going to continue to see this trend line into the future. Any parting thoughts? Just that customer discovery and collaboration just seem to be key. They've always been key. I think that there have been moments in. Uh, industry and in higher ed when we maybe were not attuned enough to to the end user. I don't think that's the case now. So I see a really positive trend towards refocusing on people's needs in this time. And I'm seeing that trend in industry as well as in higher ed. Mm -hmm. And it's a moment when some of what we're doing to handle our day-to-day business, all the Zoom calls and all of the online work, 
can be frustrating because you miss the collegiality, but at the same time, it's expanding our networks in really interesting ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the more broadly we can collaborate and the more broadly we can work to define problems by using these kinds of digital networks to expose us to people we might otherwise never come into contact with, the better we'll all be. So mm -hmm. study after study shows the more diverse your teams, the better your outcomes. And I would say the same is true with problem solving. The, the more problems you dig up and try to solve, the more interesting your solutions will be. So I see it as a really positive time in a lot of ways, even if we're working through some difficult situations. Yeah. Fantastic conversation. Shannon include many, many varied aspects to your history, your story, and uh, looking forward to, to seeing your future success at the Hatchery at Emory and in all your endeavors. And uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Awesome. And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening.